Good morning, ladies and gentle people. Scott Colborn here with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. And how are you doing? I've had a really busy week myself. We've had a lot of rain in Lincoln, and looks like the sun's trying to peak out right now, which is good. Looks like it's going to be a great rest of weekend. Sure glad to have you here. We celebrate uh, our program birthday in about one week. We figure uh, rough calculations, Kentucky windage, if you will, that uh, by next Saturday, we'll be celebrating 35 years on the radio. Yay! 35 years of interesting conversation, at least from my side. Um, I so much enjoy and continue to enjoy the simulating, rousing conversations that we have with our guests and look forward to that every week. Plus, I get to hang out with my friend Jim Shorty, who's right there. Oh, you're such a sweet talker. And a purveyor of coffee. Purveyor of coffee. Yeah, I'm, I'm here for the coffee, quite so, honestly. This is Costa Rican this morning. Very good. You always come up with the best coffee, Scott. Oh, my goodness. That's so good. We've got a great show for you this morning. We're going to start off with Charlene and Pet Talk, Dogs and Cats for Adoption. Then we've got Preston Dennett, The Seen and the Unseen. And our main guest is Jim Willis. He's the author of many books, including Lost Civilizations, The Secret Histories and Suppressed Technologies of the Asians. And here is Charlene with the Capital Humane Society. Take her away, Charlene. Good morning. Hi, how are you? Good morning. I'm doing very well, thank you. What's coming up at the Capital Humane Society? We are having our Fall Feline Frenzy Adoption Promotion, and that is 50% off the adoption fees of the cats and kittens at the Adoption Center. Half off, but you still get the whole cat. That's right, absolutely. <laughs> Rough guess, how many cats do you have today? Oh, you know, that is a very good question. I'm guessing in the 40 to 50, um, maybe. Uh, yeah, I, I, we're going to be getting some from our other facility. Um, so everything starts over at the other facility. That's where they're spayed and neutered and mm -hmm. microchipped, and then they come over here. And we did a whole bunch of adoptions yesterday, um, which is wonderful, and we are getting yes. some new ones coming over today. A yes. lot of uh, fabulous, furry, fluffy, fuzzy felines. Yes. That was pretty good, Jim. I Way to string those words I, together. I thought so. Well, I, I took my cue from Charlene there. She kind of started it. <laughs> well, let's, let's, let's help adopt some more cats and kittens. Who's up first? We'll start with Flynn. And Flynn is super cute. One year old, a neutered male, domestic short hair, has uh, black and white markings, really dark, pretty eyes, like he's wearing eyeliner. Um, clever, adventurous, wants very much to have fun and an awesome new home. So you're in like Flynn. <laughs> dun, da, dun, dun, okay. dun, dun, you'll not see nothing like the mighty Flynn. He, he is an interesting looking cat yeah. with those, those markings he, on, he his, is. on his nose between his eyes and then kind of a, almost a white mask. 
Uh, you folks at home can also follow along, capitalhumanesociety.org. And uh, you can look at the picture of Flynn. You can click on that. It expands. And, yeah, I see what Jim's talking about. There's almost like a reverse image there. A Rorschach um, blot. Especially if you looked at the clat, uh, cat, <laughs> the clat and the cat, both of those, right next door. Look at Hank. Look at Hank's face. Or doesn't he look like a dignified fellow? To uh, Flynn, yeah. Interesting markings. Okay, Flynn is up for adoption. He'd love to see you today or tomorrow. And who else is up? We have Irma. Sure. And she is a tortoise shell cat with bright green mm-hmm. eyes, front declawed, looking for a safe indoor-only home. A very sweet cat, uh, knows the right family is out there and hopes maybe they'll be coming in today. Interesting. Kind of an evenly spread tortoise shell pattern. Mm-hmm. Oh, her, her coat just looks so soft, mm-hmm. just inviting, like, please pet me. Look at that. Yes. Can I use you as a pillow? <laughs> uh, Irma would love to see you today or tomorrow. She's a great-looking cat. Flynn and Irma and their buddy. Tally. And Tally's about six years old, a spade female, dark, shiny fur. It's short hair. Uh, she gets along with the other nice cats in her colony. Um, she's just beautiful and wants to relax in a new home. Okay, we're we're looking for here. I'm sorry. We're looking for Callie. Oh, Callie with a T. I'm sorry. Callie, gotcha. Okay, Callie with a T, and she's on her little perch, and she's kind of leaning off it. She's really struck an adorable. They're down there. The last one on a second page. Oh yeah, (laughs) she's got her head flat (laughs) against the wall. That's a cute picture. Now, is that one of those weird uh, trick photographs? So if I turn it 45 (laughs) degrees, is no. Yeah. She's just laying there being really relaxed and just, uh, you know, very photogenic. Because she doesn't really have a flat head. (laughs) No. (laughs) Flynn, Irma, and Tally, T-A-L-E-Y, three great cats. See their pictures at CapitalHumaneSociety.org. Better yet. Here's Charlene to tell you about hours open today and tomorrow. Please visit us at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center. We are open on Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 530. Um, who let the dogs out? <laughs> our wonderful volunteer was in today and let the dogs out, and we're so grateful. They all got their little walk. Um, we have other volunteers that will give them two more walks today. Um, but hopefully they'll be walking out of here with their new family. Hey, and guess who I saw on TV a couple days ago? Who ba- was that? Baby girl. Yeah. She's a TV star now. I'll be darned. She is? Yep, they did a nice spot on the news about baby girl. Was she well-behaved? Oh, yeah, very. Yep, and so you can actually watch that if you go to her bio on our website. Awesome. Uh, we've linked that. So it says oh. click here to see her on the news. Cool. Uh so you can watch that. She was a very sweet little gal. Mm-hmm. Um, she can be. She's a, a very intelligent dog. Uh, she does need an experienced owner who can bring out the best in her uh, that will, you know, just show her what is okay, um, and that provides her with proper uh, a proper enclosure when, she, when they're not home. Um, so, again, she's a bright dog, and she knows the right families out there. Okay, well, we've just talked about baby girl. And uh, 
We'd love to have you love her. Her picture's up at capitalhumanesociety.org. And like Charlene said, you can click on her picture. And then in that bio, there's a link for that video. You can watch the clip and have fun. Uh, who's up next? Arthur. So if you're looking for a little friend, he's only 11 pounds, 10 years old, a chihuahua mix, a real nice dog, um, just wants to curl up with you and snuggle. Um, he is looking for a home with uh, children that are at least um, older than eight because he is so shy. So fast movements and things can make him nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, in the right home, he's going to do really well. He'll just curl up on your lap and be the best friend. Okay, Arthur, inquisitive dog. He's got his ears up. He's listening. He's alert. And he'd love to see you. Baby girl, Arthur, and who else? Riley. Another little dog, if you like smaller companions, and he's about 16 pounds, a terrier mix, seven years old. I'm sorry I said he, but it's a she, a spayed female. Um, very shy when first meeting new people, um, so you're going to want to approach her with uh, patience and kindness. Uh, She does need a home without children because she does get startled easy. Uh, But once she knows she can trust you, she is going to want to go for walks and be your best little buddy. And let's talk about also Stella. Just what a beautiful dog. Thank you. Yeah, Stella is very pretty. She's been looking for a home for a while. She's got a ton of energy, so she needs somebody who can keep up with her. She's a boxer mix, a spade female, about two years old. Um, very much wants to have fun, go for walks, run around in the backyard with a toy. Um, so if a family has a lot of energy, Stella might be their perfect new family member. A lot of intelligence in that dog's eyes. Boy, what a beautiful mm-hmm, dog. For sure. Baby girl, Arthur, Riley, and Stella. And my dog, Mac the Good Dog, says hello. And <laughs> Thank you. He suggests that everybody listening go out and see these great dogs in person today and tomorrow. And here's Charlene with Hours Open. We will be open at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center today and tomorrow from 11 to 5.30. Okay, what are you doing for the rest of the day? Are you working or playing hooky or what? Uh, I am working, so I will be here. Um, we have a lot of great volunteers coming in to help us. We've got this fall feline frenzy adoption special going on, so it should be a very busy day. Tell us once more about the feline special. So that is where if you adopt a cat or kitten, their adoption fee will be reduced by 50%. Cool. Okay, I I hope that generates a lot of people and a lot of interest. We love hearing stories about dogs and cats adopted from you. Thanks, Charlene, for all that you do. Thank you. Have a great day. Charlene and friends at the Capital Humane Society make them the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. I'm Scott Colborn with Jim Shorney, and Jim just said a couple minutes ago off air, we made it. We made it. And I thought to myself, we did it. Okay. Jim, what are you talking about? Well, there's a big sign right here in front of us that said we reached and exceeded our $40,000 fundraising goal. Oh, that's fantastic news. That is awesome. Thank you, everyone out there. That, you know, the, those last donations trigger so much. They decide so mm-hmm. much. And uh, the Corporation Pro- Public Broadcasting says we've got to raise from our local area $300,000 to prove that we're viable. 
And if we can do that, we receive a fairly good chunk of money as a grant. So it was nip and tuck, and the end of our fiscal year was September 30th. Kind of a nail-biter. And guys and gals came through, and so thank you so much. We were able to achieve and surpass that goal, and that'll trigger those funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. So thank you so much. Uh, with us next is Preston Dennis, and uh, he's from that direction. Somewhere out there, somewhere to the left. Yep, somewhere to the left. He's out there in the west. And uh, on the west coast, Preston always has interesting stories. Preston, good morning, and how are you? Preston, how are you? I'm good. There can you hear is. me? I can hear you. <laughs> you bet. How are things going? Yeah, great. It's just beautiful weather out there. It's a weekend. I'm happy. We got we got to love that. You are a bookkeeper and accountant by day, solving puzzles and putting things together, little pieces, big picture stuff, bringing that into cohesion, making sense of a bunch of math, and then by night and on the weekends, you follow up on these reports that people give you. What are people talking about? What's kind of the pulse of people right now? Oh, there's always something, you know. I'm getting lots more and more UFO accounts. I've done a lot of paranormal stuff, but UFOs seem to be what most people are really buzzing about right now. Mm -hmm. And are these present-day sightings or reports, or are they historical, a mix of both? Uh, A mix of both. I get mostly historical. Some people, you know, years, literally, to find someone who will listen Mm -hmm. uh, to what they saw. Um, So a lot of people don't talk about what they saw to their own family members even. And it's not like we've had a, a government or a military that for 75 years has um, said, yes, tell us your reports. We want to hear about that. Yes, we're interested. We've had, in effect, 75 years of oppression, of suppression, of disinformation, uh, of planted people in the media trying to sway public opinion. And, uh, gosh, when I was... Do you remember Preston being a younger guy, maybe and seeing some of the broadcasts or watching them now historically on YouTube where the government will try out this guy who sort of looks at the camera and rolls his eyes and smirks like, man, I could be doing so much more than here talking about this wacky UFO stuff. You know, there's nothing, you know, people making stuff up, they're lying, they're hallucinating, case closed. And these sort of off-the-cuff remarks were part of that disinformation campaign, weren't they? Absolutely. Yeah, I think we've tracked these, some of the people down to being actual paid government debunkers. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just uh, it's unethical. It's not right on any level. I'm pretty upset about how our government has handled this whole UFO situation, which is why I'm doing this stuff, because so many people come to me, they're like, you know, you wouldn't believe what I saw, and no one will talk to me about it. Uh, just recently, I did, finished completing an interview with this lady from uh, Southern California here, who had an experience in 1992, and that immediately 
set my alarms up because 1992 was a huge year for me. There was a giant wave of sightings here in the Santa Monica mountain range, and her experience was in Oxnard, which is sort of in that area. So I'm like, uh-oh, what, what do we have here? Because uh, I knew that there was so much activity during that time. And she described this pretty incredible experience, actually. She was driving along with her young 10-year-old daughter by a lemon orchard, when suddenly there's this bright, bright object appearing literally out of nowhere. It's just suddenly there. It's 300 feet away. It's right over the orchard, literally maybe 10 feet above the trees. Um, they could not believe how low this thing was. Very large, so bright that you couldn't even see any detail on it. And it's hovering in place for just a few seconds when it starts darting around and moves very quickly, so fast, they said that it was like flames coming out the back, it looked like, or just maybe streaking around. And they lost sight of it, and they're freaking out when suddenly they realized it was directly above their car. Mm-hmm. They have a sunroof, and they looked up, and this thing is 50 feet over their car. Very low, much lower than any possible aircraft could be. So they're terrified at this point, and they slam on the accelerator. And this thing keeps up with them perfectly, absolutely pacing their car to the inch. So they slam on the brakes and move very slowly, and of course it does too. And this is the pattern I saw in a bunch of other cases in this time in this area where objects would follow cars down the highway. And this is, you know, a little bit north of the area where most of the activity was happening. Um, so I was kind of surprised this year it stretched this far north followed the same exact pattern. This went on two or three times. They're screaming, they're freaking out, and finally it just stops and goes straight up and is gone. And uh, they had no missing time, nothing like that. They've never seen a UFO before since. Uh, So it appears it was just one of those random flybys. Uh, I haven't talked to the daughter yet. I want to talk to her. I'm feeling, you know, she may have had more sightings. She was 10 years old. And uh, I'm wondering, hmm, I wonder if that was just one of many. But the mother says, no, this is the only time she's ever seen anything. Douglas Adams, the writer of many fiction books, theorized that that these visitors were actually kids joyriding in the borrowed spaceship from their parents. I was just thinking that myself. And so (laughs) they come down and say, watch this. Whatever they do, we're going to shadow and mirror this. Watch what they do now. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think that's absolutely right. I really do. And I do, I think I mentioned this before, interviewed this one guy from Louisiana uh, who found himself aboard a UFO and it was darting around and he was, you know, inside the control room watching this thing dart around and swooping and he had the distinct impression that these greys were teenagers and were saying, Oh, how do we maneuver the craft? Let's try this. Go there. Um, <laughs> sit down. And uh, he was watching it all from inside the craft. I said go up, not down. <laughs> <laughs> My up, not your down. Come on. And it's a clear agenda. I mean, this happens so much that it's finally dawned on me, like, they're doing this obviously on purpose. They're not trying to hurt people. They're just trying to thrill them, get a little rise out of them, just like, teenage joyriders would do. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm thinking. 
think you're right. And a, a, a lot of these people that contact you, uh, do they seek you out through your, your website? Do they hear you on a radio broadcast, a podcast? Um, yeah, mostly through my website. You know, a number of them have picked up one of my books. Uh, hearing me on the radio is actually pretty common. I get a number of reports that way, but then they have to track me down through uh, other means. Cause, you know, usually my website, uh, which you know, it's getting more and more hits. Early on, my website was getting, gosh, 30,000 hits a month. Uh, it wow. slowed down a bit. Now that you know, there's a lot more people doing this. But back in the 1990s, yeah, I was getting an enormous number of hits on my site. And uh, just curious, uh, I don't know with your your uh, stats if you can track that, but do you know where a lot of those come from? Um, yeah, that you can actually have a little tracking feature, and uh, comes from all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes when you do a, a radio show, you can see a spike in contacts and things like that. And other people will, come, some come from Amazon, you know, they'll seek out a certain book and they click on that and that's, so you can kind of tell what people are interested in. A lot of people are interested in the UFO healing accounts. Uh, a lot of people are interested in their regional uh, area, wherever they might live. Uh, a lot of people are interested in this subject for sure. <laughs> And I think what we're seeing is with these UFOs, um, they haven't landed officially, but they keep you know, chasing cars down the road. They're hovering, they're putting on displays. They're slowly, slowly getting us used to their presence so that when, I think it's a preparation, honestly, for open official contact, uh, which, gosh, is probably going to occur at some point. I'm not sure when, but it feels like that's what we're heading towards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've got people right now on our streaming map listing from Moscow, uh, from Prague, Czechoslovakia, from Germany. A lot of folks here from the States that we can kind of see. Um, Yeah, I'm in contact from Ukraine, uh, Russia, Norway, Belgium, France, Canada, definitely a bunch of people in England, all over the world. So it's definitely something that's uniting us in a way that that few subjects do. Uh, Tell us about um, another story that you might have heard recently. Uh, Well, let's see. Gosh, I've been working so hard on publicizing the schoolyard uh, UFO book. What a great book. (laughs) Yeah, it's doing well. I've sort of pushed the interviews aside. I I was recently contacted by a guy who uh, was part of the Nimitz, I believe, um, pretty well-known encounter, and I haven't talked to him yet. I really want to do that, but gosh, I'm so darn busy these days that I have to limit myself to what I you know, can do. Because I have literally 10 or 20 or 30 interviews I've done, which I still have to transcribe, and that takes hours. And then you have to follow up those interviews. So this is, you know, geez, I've got a burgeoning caseload that I really can just barely handle. You need to somehow clone or duplicate yourself, get a bunch of doppelgangers of Preston Dennett to help you. <laughs> right? What I'd love to do is do this full time. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, I can't afford that at this time, but there's going to be a day 
and boy, watch out. Cause then I'm going to really go full speed forward. Okay, Preston, what's the total book count? How many books out so far? Uh, it's about 24. I don't want to lock that down. It could be 25, obviously. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I've got more I want to write. I'm working on another one uh, right now, very much like Inside UFOs. Mm-hmm. And I'm collecting a bunch of reports of uh, UFOs over drive-in theaters. Um, and I thought, you know, that would be a good chapter for a book, but I've got like 80 reports. Wow. So I'm like, gosh, what am I going to do with these? got to be another book. That used to be such a fun thing, too. One of the things about growing up that I remember and appreciate was going to drive-in movies. Yeah, what a great era that was. Mm -hmm. 50s and 60s and 70s. Um, And there's just a few left now, but they're still there. And uh, there's still some modern-day accounts as well. (laughs) So it's definitely an era that whose heyday has passed going on okay Preston so um, you've got a busy weekend planned um, no I want to just relax I want to just you know nurture myself relax <laughs> it's been a tough week oh please do uh, that then <laughs> I'm just going to hang out um, dig out a thing of frozen chili that I made a couple of you know, last month and uh, just sit down watch some TV clean up maybe do a little bit of writing Possibly an interview, uh, but we'll see. Yeah, just slow and easy, and poke around. Yep, when that light exactly. flashes on the control panel, you gotta you gotta honor it. So, Preston, <laughs> we want you to know that you're one of our favorites, and we sure appreciate our relationship with you and your willingness to share stories that people are sharing with you. And uh, so, thank you so much. Hey, always a pleasure and an honor. Thank you, Preston Dennett. Let's give out his website here. We ask people uh, uh, to contact him if they've had some personal UFO encounters or paranormal encounters. PrestonDennett.Weebly.com And what's so fun is just type in his name, Preston Dennett, to your favorite search engine. I don't know how he does it. It pops right up. (laughs) It's like it's waiting right there behind the curtain. And I start typing P-R-E-S, bingo, there it is. So go check his website out. And uh, Preston, you have a great rest of the weekend, okay? Thank you very much, you too. Preston Dennett's with us every first Saturday of the month for The Seen and the Unseen. Bookkeeper and accountant by day and a sleuth of all things UFO at night and on the weekends. 24 to 25 books, wow. Always fun, isn't it, Jim? Oh, yeah, lots of fun. Okay, well, I'm going to do the bottom of the hour break here. Let's get our main guest on. All righty, then. And we'll pour some more coffee and have some Mm -hmm. more conversation. Sounds good. You're listening to Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Jim and Scott, stay tuned for our main guest coming up, Jim Willis, right after this. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Great to have you with us on this Saturday morning, whether you're at the workplace or just kicking around home. So what's in your cup this morning? Are you guys and gals coffee drinkers? Are you drinking some hot tea? 
um, is it too early to have a soda pop? And people call that by different names in different areas of the of the country. Soda pop, Coke. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. So do you do you uh, take your caffeine intravenously? That's another way, I guess, that you I've do it. I've known people that should be doing that. Yep. I've had, as Preston just said moments ago, I've had a busy week myself, so it's it's kind of good just to sit down and, and kind of catch up with things. I so much enjoy the conversations we have with people on the, on the show, and uh, thank you so much for your support that allows Jim and I to keep coming down here and, and uh, having these conversations. Our next guest is Jim Willis, and Jim is the author of, of multiple books, in fact, we've got him scheduled also in December for a brand new book coming up, which is going to be a lot of fun. That brand new book is The Quantum Akashic Field, mm. a guide to out-of-body experiences for the astral traveler. I'm intrigued. Jim Willis earned his master's degree in theology from Andover Newton Theological School. He's been an ordained minister for over 40 years. He's taught courses in comparative religion and cross-cultural studies. The background includes theology, education. He's written 12 books on religion, the apocalypse, cross-cultural spirituality, and mysteries of the unknown. Uh, and this is another one of those great books from Visible Ink Press. They do such a great job of uh, printing books. And let's see, he makes his home in the woods of South Carolina with his wife, Barbara. And please welcome back to the broadcast, Jim Willis. Hi, Jim. Hi, Scott. Thank you so much. Good to talk to you again. Great to talk to you as well. How are things in South Carolina? Well, things, are, things have been very, very hot, but I'm sitting on the front porch right now watching a light, misty rain, and it looks like maybe we will finally get fall. I hope so. Oh, good. <laughs> you know, Scott, before, before we even begin talking, I have to thank you for something that you did, and you don't even know you did it. Well, I'm all um, ears. Well, a while back, we talked, uh, I think it was probably after the release of either Ancient Gods or Supernatural Gods, I forgot which one, but you and I had a had a, a great talk, and you asked uh, a very penetrating question about how it is that a, a minister who's um, you know been in <laughs> been a clergyman for forty years mm-hmm. winds up retiring and moving to the woods and uh, becoming kind of a <laughs> a shamanic wannabe. And I told you a story that I had never told uh, on the air before. But I told you a story about uh, about 30 years ago, I guess it was. I was um, My theology was kind of falling apart. I was having all kinds of midlife crisis and trouble with it. And uh, I didn't know whether I was coming or going. I didn't know whether I was going to have to drop out of the ministry. I was pretty much a fundamentalist, fundamentalist evangelical Christian minister, standard run-of-the-mill at that point. And uh, I went out to the uh, to my, a little log cabin that I had built in uh, New Hampshire, 
And there, uh, one day I decided to take a walk, just kind of think and clear my head and meditate. And I walked up to the top of this mountain, and I remember telling you the story about how I met a woman who was sunbathing up there on a rock. And, of course, I immediately was, you know, all worried and nervous, and so I turned around. She called me over, and we wound up sitting there. She was what, back in those days, 30, 35 years ago, we, we called one of those New Agers. And uh, evangelical ministers didn't have too much to do with New Agers back in there those days, but we had a fascinating conversation about spirituality. She was into crystals and and uh, reincarnation and all of that. So it was just a brilliant thing. And I realized somehow during that afternoon that I had somehow uh, received an answer to prayer. My answer was that I had to go into spirituality more, not leave it. And I uh, came down off that mountain, a changed person. Well, from time to time, I would tell this story to a couple of people, and I had people over the years say, um, are you sure that was a, a flesh and blood person you were talking to? Was it a, uh, a spirit guide? Was it from some another dimension or something like that? And I really didn't think so. But on the other hand, you know, uh, you begin to think about those things as the years go by, and you begin to wonder, well, after I told you this story, on the air, mm-hmm. uh, the last time we talked, the very next day, I got an email to my website from a woman who used to live in New Hampshire, and she told me about, uh, and it was about that same time, a very good friend of her, hers, who she called a, in her words, a new age wild child, came down off Barrett Mountain, and she mentioned Barrett Mountain. No, I had never mentioned the name of Middle Barrett Mountain to you on the air. But she said that's where the woman was. She said she came down with this uh, delightful story about going up on this mountain and meeting this evangelical minister and having this wonderful spiritual talk. And she said, I think I kind of blew his mind a little bit. And, uh, well, since then, uh, the woman who wrote to me had moved away from uh, New Hampshire, and she had uh, lost contact with her friend. Mm -hmm. But the day after I shared that conversation with you, at least I realized... It really happened. I wasn't making it up, mm-hmm. and it was a real flesh and blood person, and I'll never forget that. And it was all because you and I were talking on the air, and I just want to say thank you. Your program uh, reaches people you probably don't even know about and accomplishes things that you probably won't ever, ever know, but it's, it's important work that you do, and I say thank you. Oh, that's very kind of you to, to phrase it in that way and to share that appreciation what a fascinating story. Do you ever feel like sometimes um, when we say, I have been led, I am being led, I will be led, that there is actually a force at work that we can invoke that, that does just that? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't believe it sometimes. I believe it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's something so much bigger than we are that's uh, that's guiding us and directing us. And, of course, sometimes we're aware of it, but our own innate sense of doubt uh, comes in. We say, well, this couldn't be happening. But when we look back, it seems so perfectly obvious that uh, we were we were guided, we were led, as you said in, with, with your words there, that... Uh, I think there's, if, if we could just learn how to relax into that force and let it come mm-hmm. and just accept it and go with the flow, 
what a wonderful life we would lead until instead of spending all this time worrying about what's going to come next and how we're going to do it and what we're going to do and all that. Jim, uh, about a week ago, I had an appointment with a gentleman. I was um, going to meet him at his place of work and get a story about some paranormal occurrences that were that were going on. And he had suggested the location, the meeting time, etc. So I showed up and um, I was told by his staff that that he wasn't able to be there. Something had come up, business or whatever. And so, well, I'm still, you know, this is an establishment that serves food. I'm still going to get some food to take home and, and enjoy. So the trip isn't for not totally. And so I'm sitting there and waiting for the food to be done and uh, just kind of enjoying the ambience. I get the, the takeout food. I, I thank the young lady and I walk out in the outer dining room and there sits Stan, who is another person that I've been collecting information from another in really interesting story about his time working at the state capitol and how his life was literally saved on the roof of the state capitol by an unseen presence. He'd had a mishap sealing up copper roofing sheets. Copper lasts forever, but you got to seal up these sheets with solder and lead. And mm. so the flexing and thawing of freeze and thaw and wind and, and sun and, and cold would sometimes pop these seams or cause them to start leaking down below. So that was his job as a coppersmith. And he was out there one morning and his soldering gun, unbeknownst to him, he's making this line of acid and solder and it hits a hidden pool of water. The water explodes up into his face with solder and acid and he's blinded. He's on the roof of the state capitol building on copper and he can't see he's blinded. Stan wow. felt an unseen presence grab him by the arm and gently and firmly turn him around, walk him across this treacherous roof to the access ladder, help him up the ladder into a room, help him across the room into the hallway, and whoever this was standing right there holding his arm, Stan called out and said, Pinky, Pinky, please come help me, I've been hurt to a friend of his in an adjoining office. And at that utterance, this unseen presence let go of his arm. Wow. So I had collected that story a few years ago and had been wanting to touch base with him. So even though my original trip to this place to talk to somebody else was for naught, by honoring that and being there and showing up and all that timing, all those gears and wheels working, I walk out, and here in the outer room, there sits Stan. Wow. And it was totally wow. empty except for a young man with him. So yeah, I got yeah. a chance to walk up and talk with him and, and uh, kind of touch base again. So, Yeah. You know, you know stories like that, they, they just make your hair stand on end. And one of the things that bothers me about... Um, religion in the modern world as it's practiced today is that uh, our religious traditions, all of them, from Judaism to Christianity to Islam, they're full of stories like that, mm -hmm. but somehow we've allowed our modern 
um, sensibilities to drown them out, you know, and we don't hear when, for instance, in the Bible, we read about, uh, uh, you know, we have been touched by unseen angels or angels unawares Mm -hmm. and all this kind of thing. And for some reason, this modern life we lead um, is so surface-oriented that the depths are there, but we just don't pay them any attention. I think, I think we're surrounded by stories like these. I, I would love to see a, the, these kinds of um, these kinds of stories on the front page of the headlines, rather than some of the things we read today, because I think it could change our, our entire civilization. I really do. I, Jim, I so so agree with you. Sometimes I think to myself that that what's being championed in the uh, blasts and the headlines and the the repeated news cycles is part of the illusion and it's not part of the reality at all. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We, we, we read just the facts and it turns out that the facts are the illusion. <laughs> well, wow. you have a, a, a really interesting new book, um, gorgeous front cover that's called Lost Civilizations, The Secret Histories and suppressed technologies of the ancients. And right there, that really causes one holding the book in their hand to think. I mean, how far back do we go? And what's yeah. the current accepted paradigm? And what happens when we have information that we come across that interferes with that accepted paradigm? Yeah. I think we're now yeah. we're back talking about the maintenance of the illusion as opposed to to reality. Yeah, and and what where would we have been as a culture if we had not lost those uh, uh, secret histories? If we had not lost those suppressed technologies? Oh, that's uh, an we interesting were thinking question. just today, my wife and I were thinking just today, what would it have been like? for us as a culture if, for instance, the Alexandrian Library, which contained the wisdom of the world at that point from all over the world, what if it hadn't been destroyed and we could have built on it rather than having to rediscover and what was lost to us totally? Um, I think it's changed us as a culture. One of my, one of my great uh, moments in life that I, I, I won't forget was a, a good friend of mine um, told me this story about his father had died just a couple of months before he was born. And so he was raised a very wonderful mother, a woman who's kind of my second mother, too. And uh, he was raised in this in this way of having to uh, try to imagine who his father was. And he picked up stories from here and there. He picked up uh, a story about his father liking sports or a father, his father liking bowling or his father working here. And over his lifetime, he built up this image of who his father was. And that was perfectly sufficient for him until he was cleaning out his mother's house and upstairs in her attic, he discovered a whole bundle of journals that had been written by his father that revealed a totally different man than this image he had picked up. The image that he had decided was his father was the illusion. And there in the journals, he was able to read in the words of his father the, who the real father was. And I said to him, what, how did you feel? And he said, I didn't know who I was. What was even worse 
was that his father died of a disease which was uh, which can be passed on to offspring, and so he had to get himself checked, and thankfully he didn't have it. But what would have happened uh, had he inherited this disease from his father and not known it? It, it just changed his life completely. I, I couldn't help but think what a tremendous metaphor this was for the human race. We've forgotten who we are. Who we, are. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know who our ancestors are, and we've built up this illusion from an archaeological dig here or an old story here or a passed down uh, from to generation after generation, mythology or something like that. But we have forgotten who we are. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just wonder if it could also be that there have been civilizations before us that died out, and they died out of a fatal disease that maybe we have inherited, but we're just not aware of it. I'm talking about a disease like hubris or ego or over uh, dependence on technology or something like that that could have destroyed civilizations in the past we don't know it and because we don't know it we're just repeating it mm-hmm. kind of keeps you up nights doesn't it if if we had um, you know God God forbid and God bless us all if we had a major cataclysm that happened right now that somehow yep. was enough to to um, kill most of the people living, mm-hmm. how long would it be before the artifacts that we have created as part of our civilization would be gone? The Not long at all. The uh, buildings, first of the, all, if we, the if, roads. If we had the, a major... Uh, a major catastrophe mm-hmm. uh, that really affected our the infrastructure, our social infrastructure, which we depend on, like roads and electricity mm-hmm. and all of that. They figured there would be panic and uh, uh, war within three weeks. As soon as the uh, uh, people can't get their food anymore and we can't grow it anymore and all that kind of stuff, that would be unbelievable. But when I began to look at these things, I, I saw those levels of the past that you were talking about. Um, how long would it be or how long back can we go? When I first started um, doing research for lost civilizations, I was going back hundreds of years. I was thinking in terms of uh, Machu Picchu or the Anasazi uh, or ancient Puebloan ruins in, in or the uh, ancestral Puebloan ruins out in the mid in the southwest. Hundreds of years disappeared, and we don't know who they are. But then I discovered you can go back thousands of years to Crete and to Mesopotamia and wonder what it is that destroyed those civilizations. And then you can go back many thousands of years to Gobekli Tepe. And one of the most uh, jaw-dropping things I found was that there is an event horizon, uh, and we just can't see past it. It goes back about 2.6 million years. The oldest uh, rock exposed on the surface that we know about is something like five and a half uh, million years old, and it's it's in uh, Australia right now. But basically, if we go back 2.6 million years, we just don't know what happened before that. So they called it an archaeological event horizon. Well, when you think about it, when you're talking about a planet that's 5 billion years old, 2.6 million years is a drop in the bucket. There's all kinds of time for uh, different civilizations to develop. Maybe... Uh, maybe not even like us, maybe reptilian, maybe um, spiritual, maybe uh, it's just, it, you just can't really tell. Eventually, 
our civilization is going to be gone. Uh, our sun is going to explode, or even before, way before that happens, we may destroy ourselves, or uh, we can't leave this planet really right now with our technology that we have now. Uh, it would take us 1,000, 10,000 10,500 years or something like that to get to the nearest star that might or might not have a planet that's habitable. And so we're going to go the way of all flesh, so to speak. Something else will come after us. It may not be anything like us. Maybe it'll be artificial intelligence. Maybe it'll be some totally different life form that we can't imagine that will evolve to take our place. But has that happened before? Um, it's just wild to speculate about it. We just simply don't know. So writing Lost Civilizations was uh, really kind of a labor of love. It, it allowed me to research all kinds of these wild and crazy ideas and just ask, what if? <laughs> Jim, stay, stay with that thought. We'll be right back after the top of the hour break. Uh, really enjoying having you back on the, on the broadcast. Jim and I are going to pour some more coffee for ourselves here. And uh, Jim, what's in your cup, by the way? Uh, water. Okay. I've already had coffee, but it's almost noon here. So, <laughs> I mean, it is noon here, come to think of it. <laughs> okay. Uh, Jim Willis, the brand new book is Lost Civilizations. We'll take our top of the hour break. We'll be right back. Sure glad to have you out there. I'm Scott Colborne with Jim and Jim. We are exploring unexplained phenomena. Jim Willis is our guest this morning, the author of Lost Civilizations. The Secret History, Histories, and Suppressed Technologies of the Ancient. Jim's website, easy to find. It's Jim Willis, that's W-I-L-L-I-S, dot net. And that's a great jump-off place. If you want to go to his publisher, you can look up visibleinkpress.com and you'll find his, uh, his book there. Uh, years ago... Uh, Jim, I had on uh, Michael Cremo, who wrote a book called Forbidden Archaeology. Yeah. And in one story in particular that was so fascinating, he talked about the California gold rush. And I may be off by a decade. I'm going to guess it was 1870s in that era. Could have been 1880s. Uh, and so he talked about these miners that instead of going to a hill and digging down from the top, they thought about why not try to create a tunnel from the side and dig in laterally into this hill. And that way we can uh, do a better job of making the tunnel, protecting it, and getting to the interior of this hill and look for the, the gold and things that we're looking for. So in doing so, in multiple occasions, these miners we're going into rock that was millions of years old. And they were finding artifacts from another civilization. Yep. Obvious tools, utensils, even things that look like old batteries, if you will. And so Mr. Cremo explored the tectonic plate shift and uplifts and faults and could these things have somehow percolated down from the surface? And he could see evidence in the rock strata that it hadn't occurred. This was actually deposited there a long, long time ago, and these rocks 
and the sediment and debris formed over the top of them. You know, I hear stories mm-hmm. like that, and my jaw just drops. Yeah, yeah. And I, your book's I filled with dis- these stories. I have discovered dozens of stories like that. They, they're just... Uh, we don't hear about them. We say, well, why don't we hear about them? Well, the answer is we don't, people don't want to talk about them. Um, I've come up with stories of, for instance, of people finding um, archaeologists discovering an ancient uh, iron uh, hammer, very definitely human-made, encased in a bed of coal. Now, how long ago was coal formed, you know? Um, Come up with all kinds of things like this. And I think probably the best way to understand why we don't hear about these stories was told me by um, uh, an archaeologist who, before his retirement, worked right here in um, in South Carolina at a very famous site that uh, was a Clovis site until he decided to dig down below Clovis. And he discovered evidence of uh, human uh, working on stone and things that go back at least 35,000, and in some cases dated to 50,000 years ago. Wow. And he said he had to make a real decision. He called his whole staff together, and he said, if we tell people this, that we're going down to a pre-Clovis site that can go back 50,000 years, um, he said, I, I want to warn you, your careers could be over. You might not get tenure. You might not get money for things. This is just, you don't want to go pre-Clovis. And he, he said, I have even told my, he told me this, it's almost a direct quote, I have even told my, stu- my students, if you're digging here and you find a pre-Clovis site, don't tell anybody. Bury it up because uh, it's just, it'll change your life and not necessarily for the better. There seems to be this idea that uh, there is, well, I call it the conspiracy of silence. It's, there seems to be this idea that we are to accept the um, traditional academic view of things, and even though in many cases, from Clovis first to the red paint people in Maine, to the new discoveries in uh, uh, South America, in the Amazon, that go way, way back before uh, anybody thought there was anybody here in America. Uh, In all of these sites, there seems to be a feeling that even though we're discovering these things, there is a People don't want to talk about it. It'll mean uh, recasting lectures. It'll mean redoing textbooks. It'll, it'll mean opening up, and uh, people are paying the price for this terribly. Uh, it's, it's, it's just terrible what a good academic, um, scientific-type folks can do to their own people. Um, one of my favorite examples of this, for instance, is, is uh, Hugh Everett. Um, Hugh Everett was a, a brilliant physicist who, who would, uh, was forced out of the, uh, phys- the, the establishment of physics because he suggested the many, wor- the many universes, the many worlds theory of the multiverse. Now it's accepted. During his life, he was hounded out of the profession. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a brilliant man. He eventually went to work uh, for the, the Pentagon, and he was probably even the one that may have saved the world because it was his idea and his writing that came up with this whole idea of mutually assured destruction, which during the Cuban Missile Crisis um, probably kept the world from being destroyed. And yet here he was just so brutally attacked by the people in his own feeling, in, in his own field. And this is the same thing in archaeology. Uh, It's the same thing in many different scientific endeavors. 
fundamentalism is rampant. It's not just a religious concept. I think we find it in fields all over the place. Mm -hmm. I was reading your book last night and uh, remarked about uh, new findings in Indonesia. Yeah. Um, what can you tell us uh, in just a kind of a thumbnail sketch about, about those? Well, there's, there's evidence uh, in Indonesia, first of all, uh, it's, that's the place to be nowadays, I guess, because there have been more discoveries over there. A whole new species uh, uh, of, of human beings have been discovered there. Um, and, uh, and on some of the islands, for instance, uh, you talk about, you know, they, they started calling it the Hobbit because they were very short uh, people. <laughs> But then some of the uh, the mountain the, the the mountain over there at uh, Gunung Padang, for instance, where uh, it was just thought it was a natural um, occurring mountain with some archaeological ruins on the top, and now there seems to be compelling evidence that it was man-made, human-made. Um, same kind of thing going on in in Siberia right now. We haven't been able to get into Siberia for a long time, but now that archaeologists starting to get in, there, there are. Uh, possible ruins in Siberia that have just been assumed that they were natural. Now they're not. Uh, people are beginning to wonder. Um, I'm I'm going to uh, to Turkey next September, and there are sites over there which are absolutely fascinating uh, because for a long time they've been said to be Roman uh, manufacture or uh, even later than Roman, and now there's good evidence that points to civilizations that were. Not only before Roman, but before way before uh, Gobekli Tepe, going way way back, it just makes uh, it it just makes for some fascinating times, and uh, some of the uh, discoveries in Indonesia are just uh, almost heart stopping right now about uh, finding uh, art, you know, rock art in in and uh, artifacts and things like that that are very very sophisticated and very very old. And if we adapt the regular idea that we just kind of somehow slowly evolved from hunter-gatherers to who we are today, and then way back in time when we're supposed to be ignorant savages running around wondering where our next meal is coming from, we're designing this beautiful jewelry and making this beautiful art and uh, designing these artifacts that show evidence of high-speed drills, for instance, and things like this. It's just amazing to me. This is Jim Willis. The book we're talking about is Lost Civilizations, The Secret Histories and Suppressed Technologies of the Ancients. Um, I've been trying to think of the author's name. Um, he's now deceased, but um, he wrote a book called Everything You Know is Wrong, Book One, <laughs> Human Origins. Oh, that's right, Lloyd Pye. Yes, and yes. So have you met people... Jim, that believe that there has been intervention in the human species, that we have somehow jumped from an earlier version and the jumps are not covered by fossilized records. We can't find evidence of some of those jumps. It's as if something or somebody helped orchestrate yeah. those jumps. Yeah, I, I believe that. we. I don't see evolution anymore. I can't see, I, think, I don't think we can justify it anymore of being a smooth road from primitive hunter-gatherers to us. 
punctuated equilibrium is a much better sign. There's certain mm-hmm. to be certain times, times in history when something has happened and we don't know what. Uh, it could have been caused through natural catastrophe uh, people had to recover from. It could have been caused by an ancient civilization being destroyed, and yet some of the survivors from that civilization uh, uh, living to kind of jumpstart the hunter-gatherers that were left after uh, a great cataclysm of some kind. Uh, um, Gobekli Tepe is probably the greatest example of this. We go back, uh, what, 11,800 years ago, mm-hmm. and here's Gobekli Tepe. All of a sudden, one night, one day there's nothing but a bunch of hunter-gatherers. The next day, there's this magnificent edifice that, uh, how do they learn how to do it? Who taught them? Did they just all of a sudden wake up one day and said, we're going to do this? Uh, it just doesn't seem possible. There are, um, there's jewelry and bracelets discovered in Siberia that are just gorgeously well-worked, and yet they came from Denisovan ancestry, and the Denisovans were making this stuff even before our own race, Homo sapien, uh, came on the scene. How did they learn how to do this? Where did the knowledge come from? Uh, History is just absolutely littered with stories like this. I like to look at two great uh, streams of evidence, I think, that we just have to really consider if we're going to learn how all this happened. The first is what I call evidence in stone, and that's the actual megaliths, the structures, the discoveries, the um, the artifacts themselves. Mm-hmm. But the other is I like to call artifact. I mean, uh, evidence in story, and that's the the rich mythology that's out there about um, who we were and where we came from. And every culture on Earth has mythology like this uh, that that talks about a previous time. And so I I don't think these these punctuated equilibrium uh, moments can be explained unless we say that uh, something came from the outside. Now, it might have been previous civilizations. It, I, I'm not going to discount anything. I'm not going to discount ancient aliens. I'm not going to discount um, supernatural beings uh, who are manifestations of that, that force, that presence that guides us that you were talking about earlier. But at different times in history, we've just seen that all of a sudden something happens when all around the world it all seems to happen at the same time. Uh, some of the old monuments that were built allegedly by uh, ancient people, there were technologies being used to build these things that we have a very difficult time nowadays trying yeah. to even accomplish. Yeah, and I'm thinking I, about gigantic uh, granite blocks that yeah. weigh hundreds of tons, and I'm trying to envision uh, block and tackle and slaves with long ropes and, yeah. you know, just one more push, man, one more push, and you can have yeah. your beer ration. And, and now, now we're talking, in some cases, like at Belbeck, uh, 360,000 tons, you know, I mean, wow, how do they, how do they, you know, the the technology that we couldn't even envision today, and yet they did it. One of my, one of my favorite stories about this happened to me when I was, when I was over in Egypt, and we were, you know, our guide was taking us down, you know, through the tunnels and everything else, and as we went down, uh, I noticed that along both sides of the path where we were walking, 
there were these wires that were going down that were to light up the uh, the, the place where we were, because, of course, we were way down in the depths and the bowels of the uh, of the pyramid, and uh, we needed light down there to see. And so I began to wonder, well, how did people get down here before these lights were here? Mm-hmm. So I looked up at the ceiling. There was no soot on the ceiling. There was no evidence of any kind of uh, torches or candles or anything like that. So I said to the guide, uh, I said, how did they see to, to come down here and to work and to build these magnificent things? And the guy just kind of, he literally turned away from me and mumbled something like, well, they must have had some kind of a light source. <laughs> and that was the answer. It's just amazing to me. How did they move those blocks? And with such precision that you can't even fit a knife blade in between them. And we find them not only in Egypt, we find them in in. Peru and in Central America, um, all over the world, uh, in, in Turkey. How how did they do it? <laughs> it? They obviously had a technology, and we don't have the faintest idea what it was. Hence, the secret histories and suppressed technologies of the ancients, because we just don't know. Mm-hmm. We just don't know. I, uh, I'm speaking to Jim here in our studio, Jim Shorty. Jim, you know, I've had occasion to go down into downtown Lincoln. Mm-hmm office buildings and et cetera, and think to myself, you know, how many years would it take before all this would be gone? If there was, for example, a a cataclysm and um, we had some earth movement and Mm -hmm. et cetera, you know, we've got tall buildings. If those tumbled and then the remnants from those buildings and you know, would it yeah. would it take uh, a thousand years? Would it take ten thousand uh, years? In one of his books, Jeff Danilek, I think, in Reconsidering Atlantis, he laid that out: modern materials and things we make with them, and how long they would survive. And the upshot of it was, for most of what we made today, it wouldn't survive very long at all in the in the grand scheme of history. Is that jibe, Jim Willis, with with what you know? Yeah, yeah, it would. Yeah. It wouldn't last very long at all. I, I find the discoveries now, right, that are coming out of the Amazon region, uh, uh, to be really instructive in this. We thought that the Amazon, uh, up until the last five years, we thought the Amazon was just uh, unsettled wilderness. No one had ever been there. Mm-hmm. And now, with all the forest, the deforestation going on, and the burning of thousands upon thousands of them, of acres of of the trees there. Here are these earthworks that nobody knew were there. And so when they begin to find them, uh, we have it, it, the use right now of, of technology, of uh, you know satellite technology and stuff, so we can take pictures with earth-penetrating radar. And now that, now that we begin to look, which is the secret, you can't find anything unless you look for it, now that we begin to look, we're finding all kinds of structures there that people thought were just natural, and it turns out that they were human-made, after all. Um, I, I wonder, really, what would happen if uh, New York or Philadelphia, uh, California coast, what would happen if they were inundated by the ocean? Mm-hmm. And how long would it take? I think you would measure it probably not even in thousands of years. I think in hundreds of years you would be hard-pressed to find evidence of our, our stuff. As for our technology... Um, it was bad enough when we wrote things down on paper with real languages. Now, all of our knowledge is stored on microchips. 
and uh, they have an amazingly short life mm-hmm. life uh, lifespan. If we lose our electrical in- infrastructure, we lose our wisdom. Uh, everything we know, the cloud disappears, and uh, we can't can't bring anything out of the cloud anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it would take long at all. Not at all. So uh, to both Jim Willis and Jim Shorney, then here's my uh, a question. If we were charged with creating a time capsule that we wanted to preserve something ranging from a simple hello from 2019 to some sort of recollection for the future of who we were, where we were at, how would we how would we do that? Would we create Harvard in stone? Would we surprisingly create something? we've already done it. <laughs> it's it exists right now. Well, underground. that's that's Deep underground in the salt mines of Nebraska. That's that's um, there my, is a huge there a huge complex down there where all of the information that we can come up with is being stored down there. It's called the world's greatest storage facility, mm-hmm. and uh, um, but again. As big as it is, you have to know where it's there because it it could lie there for thousands and thousands of years, and no one could discover yeah. it unless they knew where to look. I I think Gobekli Tepe is just like this. Uh, Jim just said about uh, putting it in stone. Um, Gobekli Tepe was made, and within a hundred years of its of its uh, completion, the, uh, uh, it was deliberately buried, not accidentally, but deliberately buried. And when Klaus Schmidt began to uh, do the excavations there and clear this place, he found all kinds of symbolic representation of, of animals and star charts mm-hmm. and uh, uh, sightings to this star and to that star and to everything else. Obviously, there's a tremendous message there, and uh, they deliberately buried it so that it would be found at some point in the future. Maybe we just... Again, <laughs> we just don't know. That, that was going to be the extension. The next question, you know, have we found an evidence um, of other civilizations that have tried to do just that? Let's send yeah. a message forward to the future with a time capsule. I, I think so. I think it's a, we have one in plain sight right now, and that's in Egypt on the Giza Plateau. Um, there are all kinds of legends in Egypt about what they call the Zeptepi, the first time. And during that time, uh, the gods were said to have come and taught the people civilization, and uh, taught the people how to read, taught the people how to write, uh, taught the people uh, how to build the pyramids, how to do construction projects. And it was all there. And the, uh, the story seems to be the one that I love the most is that the Sphinx is probably the greatest example of this. Uh, it was designed to be staring at its own likeness, uh, Leo the lion, at a particular time in history. And at that particular time in history, of course, the stars line up in a certain way. Well, then through procession, we go through thousands and thousands of years of Earth wobble and everything else. But uh, as we begin to near the procession where the Sphinx is once again staring at that same thing of stars. There's a tremendous amount of wisdom there. And are there records buried somewhere underneath the Sphinx or underneath the Great Pyramids? Uh, there, the new caves that are there that are being called the Collins Caves, because Andrew Collins swore they were real, and now it turns out they are. 
uh, history is full of stories about buried beneath the Giza Plateau is wisdom of a long-forgotten age that the, uh, the people of Egypt call the Zeptepi. Uh, I call it the Atlantis tradition, because I think that was probably where the information came from. Um, and it's, it's there, and we can discover it, but we just have to look for it. We have to open our minds and hearts to look for it, and that's going to be the key. And right now, although I hope that we're opening up our minds and hearts, uh, it's, there's still a long way to go before we have the established academics with the money and the resources and the knowledge to look at these things before they will beginning to begin to accept it. And, and Jim, what do you think of the notion that the pyramids are much older than what we're told they are? Oh, I think undoubtedly they are. Uh, I think the confusion comes that there is undoubtedly some new construction there, but I think the new construction is built on old construction, which is built on older construction, which is built on either old, even older construction than that. Uh, I don't think there's any there's any question that the, the Sphinx goes back to because of the water erosion, the famous water erosion that is there on the on the, on the Sphinx that people don't want to acknowledge in a, in a lot of ways. It had to have been when the Egypt when Egypt was not a desert, but it was well-watered and a fertile place. And that takes us back at least 10,800, uh, 11,800 years, 12,000 years. So, yeah, yeah I, I don't think there's any question that, that it's much older than, uh, than we expect there. What an interesting adventure, Jim Willis, that you've had as a theologian, uh, and this journey continues for you. Wow. Well, it, it, it's, it's been very important to me. I think I had to be grounded in something, and so all of the study in biblical texts and then, of course, extra-biblical texts and ancient texts and the, the, the language and that you had to learn and, and the translation things and all of that, although I wouldn't have thought about it at the time, I think it was probably the best training I could have had, mm -hmm. but uh, I, didn't, I just didn't realize it, and it took, it took retiring and moving out here to the woods before I could start put it together and see those um, unseen hands that we began the broadcast with that have been guiding me along this path. Amen to those unseen hands, and may I have the heart and mind to, to, to get that sense and that presence. Uh, Jim will take our bottom-of-the-hour break, and so much enjoying again the conversation, and please stay right there. We'll be right back. Mm -hmm. Jim Willis, his website is his first and last name, jimwillis.net, and the author of the brand-new book, Lost Civilizations, The Secret Histories and Suppressed Technologies of the Ancients, jimwillis.net. We've also got Jim Willis scheduled December 7th, which is my late mother Gentry Colborne's birthday, for another brand new book, The Quantum Akashic Field. Next week's guest on Exploring Unexplained Phenomena is Dr. Richard Boylan, Revelations on the Michael Wolf Whistleblower Case. And next week we also celebrate 35 years of broadcast of being on the radio. So we'll have kind of a birthday party next week. Stay tuned right after this for more conversation with our special guest, Jim Willis. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. That was music from the band Enigma. You can catch them around southeast Nebraska. 
And uh, Jim Shorty, what are you doing for the rest of the weekend? For the rest of the week, week, I don't know. I might be doing a little bit of antenna work if the if the grass dries out a little bit. I have a couple of things I need to fix up before snow flies. Yeah, and, uh, we had a lot of rain over the night, so I doubt that I'm going to do any. Well, who yeah, knows? I might I might wait till tomorrow. I might uh, later on today. Still might get some time to to mow a lawn. Mm-hmm. So well, good. You know, if you don't mow it, then it just keeps on growing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, funny how that works. Uh, Jim Willis is here, and Jim is uh, the author of the brand new book, Lost Civilizations, The Secret Histories and Suppressed Technologies of the Ancients. Jim, uh, from a theological background, uh, how does your understanding of Christianity and your involvement in that as a minister, your uh, acceptance of Christ as a Savior, his teachings his embodiment, how does that fit into this pursuit of ancient civilizations? Uh, it's, it's surprising. Um, a lot of people think that because I'm no longer in the ministry and um, that I, I probably, and, and I'm involved with all these other things, that I probably turned my back on Christianity. But no, I'm, I still consider myself a Christian. It's just that my way of understanding Christianity has changed. It's just opened up so much. Um, I think the metaphors of Christianity are universal, not just to Christianity, but to so many other religions. Uh, the metaphors of Christianity are, uh, I, I just find them deep and empowering. And in so many ways, I I now look at these things, these new discoveries, these spiritual discoveries, especially since I started engaging in uh, out-of-body experiences, and uh, I find that it doesn't um, it doesn't negate my faith, my religion at all. It just deepens it. Um, I think it's it's a terrible shame that we have allowed uh, all of our religions, not just Christianity, but we find it in Islam, we find it in Judaism, we find it in Buddhism, uh, in Hinduism. We've allowed all of them to kind of crust over with centuries and thousands of years of doctrines and dogmas, and we begin to think this is what it is. But I don't think that's the case at all anymore. Um, you can take the classic example of the Christians talk about the virgin birth, uh, and you find that metaphor in every religion about Father Sky and Mother Earth. You can go back to the beginning of the Greek gods, uh, and at the beginning of the Greek gods there were the ancients, uh, and uh, Gaia, which is Mother Earth, uh, had a, a, a child with Father Sky, uh, Uranus. And uh, uh, from that were born the Titans, and from them came the Olympians. Um, you find it in, in a lot in Native American faith, Native American religions. Uh, you can just go doctrine after doctrine after doctrine, and if you look at the core and take away all the encrust, encrustations we've put over them, all the rules and the regulations and the doctors and the dogmas, they can open up and teach us so much about life. So when people come to me and they say, you know, I just can't accept a lot of these things about my faith anymore, I have to encourage them, don't go away, look deeper, and you'll find things that are there that are just, are just wonderful. There's a tremendous amount of truth there. Mm-hmm. 
And I think you used a, a really key word there. There is, um, uh, in at least Christianity, which I'm more familiar with than other, uh, other organized religions, uh, a lot of what we read should be interpreted as being symbol and metaphor. Yep. There, there yep. are historical accounts, but there are the parables, there are the teachings that really serve to instruct us that are not limited just to 2,000 years ago, but through the allegory, the story, the parable, they can continue to instruct us nowadays, and they they haven't lost any of their zest uh, or their depth. No, I don't think so. I think the only reason they lose their depth is when we uh, insist that there's only one way to interpret them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the early Christians and, and the, you know, put into the, uh, the, the mouth of Jesus, for instance, the parable, say, of the Good Samaritan. And he begins to say, a certain man was going from Jericho to some. Jesus never said this was an actual story. He just assumed that his believers, his listeners, would hear the story and understand that it was meant to be a, me- a metaphor. Uh, nowadays, it seems like if we're going to understand the story, we have to send an archaeological team over to dig along Jericho Road and find if they can see any evidence of the of the uh, uh, the, the Good Samaritan, rather, uh, and that kind of thing. Uh, I think all of these things were originally meant to be not literal historic truth. Although I think, I think in a lot of these areas, we can find kernels of historic truth. But I think they were meant to be metaphors. And mm-hmm. I think they, were to, they can teach us the wisdom of life. And if we don't listen to them that way, if we don't change our ways and learn how to listen to what's already there in our religions, um, I think we're headed for some real, real troubles. I think, Jim, that the, my understanding and my personal experience with Christianity is that, that Jesus serves to show the way and the truth. And he was a... Uh, a living historical person that tried to help people see beyond illusion to an, an actual reality. And so I think that if we were so fortunate and blessed to have him with us right now, looking at your work of lost civilizations, I think that he would, in, uh, he would encourage us to continue the inquiry, to learn, to Try to understand what's been written in stone, what's been passed down in, in myth from so many cultures. I don't yeah, see him yeah. saying, no, I think the, the world started 6,000 years ago, and that's it, no matter what any, anybody else says. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I had, a, I had a friend one time who was a Methodist minister who came from a Chinese family of Buddhism, and uh, he was asked one time, uh, how can you uh, become a Christian without giving up Buddhism? <clears throat> and he said, I don't think you can be a Christian without being a Buddhist. <laughs> it was a wonderful, wonderful response, I think, because there, um, the the Buddha and that wonderful insight of uh, the the middle way through the path that leads through the duality of the world to that place that encompasses them both. And I think you can find that in Judaism. Um, you can find it in Islam. Uh, Hinduism is just absolutely loaded with these wonderful uh, allegories and myths that could be so important for the world to hear nowadays if we only just open our eyes. Some of the uh, diggings that are in 
uh, New Mexico, for example, some of the uh, the pueblos, the cave dwellers. Um, do you think it was climate change that caused those people to decide that you know the what we're getting here is just not enough for our labor? We got to move and go someplace. Um, I think it was probably a combination of a number of things. Um, when Barb and I were writing uh, Armageddon Now years ago, mm-hmm. we lived out in Arizona in a trailer for two years while I was serving as the pastor down in Nogales. And while we were there, we had a chance to visit many of these uh, Anasazi or, or ancestral Pueblo and ruins. And um, I think probably climate change didn't help. But what happened was there would be climate change that people didn't understand why things weren't growing like they did before. So they would go to their elders, the religious leaders, and the religious leaders um, said, well, we, trouble is the rains are being withheld by the gods because we got to go back to that old-time religion, you know. Uh, and so they would push the religion. And then, I'd, and then in that religion, there's evidence now that has come out relatively recently that uh, there were all kinds of manners of atrocities going on, even... Um, cannibalism used as terrorism to keep the people in line. And I think all of these different things worked together until finally one day people just rose up and said, that's it. We've, we've, uh, dis- we've, we've ruined our environment. We've burned all the trees within 100 miles. We've got nothing left to make pots. We've got no fuel left for fires, cooking fires. Now we've got these... Um, institutional uh, religious powers telling us how to live and demanding that we sacrifice even more and it's getting hotter and there's no water and uh, terrorism acts of terrorism to keep us in line i think eventually they just got up one day and said that's it we're out of here and uh how do you how do you rule the people when the people aren't there you know what if they threw a war and nobody showed up that kind of thing so I think it's, uh, it's I, to be honest, um, Scott, I think it's happening to us today. I, I think we can find a, a tremendous amount of, of in, insight from the past. Uh, Edward Gibbon, back in 1783, I think it was, wrote a book called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And back in 1783, he discovered five reasons why the Roman Empire fell apart, why that civilization collapsed. And these five reasons, do I have time to, to, to do them all? Or? You bet you do. Okay, I'll do them real quick. Uh, the number one thing he said, the first reason was that sports and entertainment was receiving more and more money while the plight of the poor was neglected. He said the number two reason was uh, the money, uh, public money was going to the military rather than for public good. The third reason, he said, was violence was becoming more and more accepted and prevalent in terms of the games that people watched and in terms of their lifestyle. And number four, he said, people's faith in government was undermined and justly so. People just didn't trust their government anymore. And finally, religious roots fragmented and were a cause for dissension. And those were the five reasons that brought about the destruction of the Roman Empire. And quite frankly, I, I see so many of those things happening even today that uh, I wonder if someday we're going to become a lost civilization. We mm-hmm. seem to be going down a road that is leading in that direction. Mm-hmm. If a person just inundated themselves with um, a 
daily dose of headlines and recycled news um, <laughs> segments, I think we come away with a distorted view of how things are. Yeah, I think so too. And it's so important so to, to have some time separate from that that may be, you know, one of my things that I enjoy doing, although it's, it's a labor, is um, getting out and doing some yard work. Yeah. Um, and that puts me out in the fresh air. It, it gets me doing on a, working on a task that I can see a, a working towards a completion. There's a, a sense of accomplishment. <laughs> I avoid yeah. bringing in grazing animals by keeping the grass down. Yeah, uh, but yeah. it's a nice alternative, it, uh, and it's a way to kind of. When I was a younger guy, Jim, I also enjoyed uh, going out and fishing, not only for the the mystery of of what was below the water and below the surface, suddenly coming into our our reference and the fish striking the lure, et cetera. But all that time that, that you could sit and, and think. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's a, there's a whole world there below the surface. That's a great metaphor. There's a whole world beneath that water. Uh, when we look mm -hmm. at it, it just reflects back at us. But down there, there's a whole different world going on. Uh, I, I mm -hmm. saw this when I was, a couple of years ago, I was asked to go and give a, uh, uh, a talk at a place in, uh, in uh, Cornwall in the, the U.K., and uh, some friends of mine took me out to uh, Carnuni, which was an, an old Neolithic village. And on the surface, it was just this, the old ruins and the old places where the people lived and talked. But they took me down through this little aperture underneath. You crawl down underneath, and there was a whole cave down there where the elders used to gather. And the kids probably didn't know what was right underneath their feet. There was a whole world underneath their feet until it came time for them to be initiated. And then they were taken down below the surface and taught what it was like to be a man, what it was like to be a woman, uh, what it was like to be an adult. And it was a totally different world. And I often wonder what it must have felt like for them to know that there was this whole world of spirituality right underneath their feet. And until they were ready for it at the time of their initiation into the adulthood, they never knew it was there. Mm -hmm. And I tend to think that sometimes we're that same way today. There's a whole world of spirituality down there below our feet. And we're just so taken up with things up here on the surface, with the technology, with all of the busyness, with all the noise, with all the confusion. We just don't realize it's there. Jim has got other books out. Uh, Visible Ink Presses, Ancient Gods, Lost Histories, Hidden Truths, and the Conspiracy of Silence. Supernatural Gods, Spiritual Mysteries, Psychic Experiences, and Scientific Truths, Armageddon Now, The End of the World A to Z, and The Religion Book. When you are not reflecting and or writing, what do you and your wife Barbara like to do for fun and enjoyment? Um... Just about anything. Of course, we we love hiking. Uh, we love seeing new things. We love um, the idea of just talking together and meditating together. Um, we have uh, a shrinking circle of friends because we're getting older, and we live out here in the woods, out of the the way. Um, we used to have a a wonderful custom that uh, of uh, every morning after breakfast, we just 
sit down at the table and, and read a book out loud to each other. It's getting harder and harder to do the things we used to do because we're both developing some health problems. Uh, but uh, we just we just keep at it. Of course, my daughter lives right next door. We built a house for her out in the woods. And oh, wonderful. She come up and help, help us uh, do a lot of the chores around here that need doing, but... Uh, we still just love getting out in the woods and walking and doing whatever we can to keep connected with the earth. Mm-hmm. Jim, I, I always look forward to our conversations, and I feel a real kinship on many levels with you and your work. I want to thank you so much for... Well, thank you, Scott. I'm just so glad there are you and people like you who are doing what you're doing, because uh, I think it's tremendously important work. And what's what's on the writing table in rough draft? Do you have a, a new project you're working on? Well, yes. Uh, matter of fact, I've already sent one in. Uh, Visible Inc. is going to publish a new book next spring. They already have the manuscript, and Kevin, my editor, is working on it already. And that's called uh, Hidden Histories. And uh, now I'm working on a trilogy about the, um, the rise of uh, ego in 21st century life and how it's threatening to take us over. And I'm doing that by looking at three different um, mythological resources, uh, Merlin the Magician, his story, mm. and the story of Robin Hood, and the story of Sleeping Beauty. And all three of those uh, legends I'm using as metaphors for the stages that uh, Ego is going through to see this life. I've also written another book that's been sent out to a couple of publishers. Nobody's picked it up yet. I hope they do. It's called Sabuco and Me, which is the story of um, uh, some of my out-of-body experiences uh, with my uh, my spirit guide, who I call I call Sabuco. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm hoping that uh, someone will pick that one up because I think there's a lot of uh, important stuff there, too. Uh, we will have you back on the broadcast, and I'll look forward to that December 7th with a book called The Quantum Akashic Field. And can you give us about a 60-second thumbnail sketch of that book? Yeah, it's almost a how-to book. Um, A number of years ago, I started um, learning how to engage in out-of-body experiences. Mm -hmm. And I studied the Monroe Institute and with William Buhlman, who I consider one of the Mm -hmm. foremost um, leaders in that field today. Mm -hmm. And uh, I discovered um, methods whereby you can get around the five senses which help us live our regular life but they also filter out so much of reality for us uh and so it's kind of a how-to book how to uh how to engage in out-of-body experience thanks jim willis very much for taking time to be with us and uh continued much good to you and barbara thank you scott appreciate it jim willis his website is jimwillis.net The book we've been talking about directly and indirectly this morning, lots of interesting tangents taken this morning, Lost Civilizations, The Secret Histories, and Suppressed Technologies of the Ancients. It's published by Visible Inc. Press, and I would refer you again to Jim's website, jimwillis.net. Next week's guest is Dr. Richard Boylan, Revelations on the Michael Wolfe Whistleblower Case. Uh, Dr. Boylan is also one of the speakers at the Starworks USA UFO Symposium, November 1st through the 3rd in Laughlin, Nevada. And I'll also be attending that uh, event. Doing a live radio show 
uh, typically from my um, hotel room. I curl a bunch of people, and sometimes up until the uh, that morning, I won't know who's going to be a guest on the show, but it's always worked out, uh, always been a, a fun and interesting conversation there. So I may do some mowing today, Jim. Looks like it's going to be a, a blue sky for a while. Yeah. And you're going to work on maybe uh, some and antenna issues. An antenna. You're a short wave guy. Yeah. That's where that antenna reference that's, comes up. That's where up. the fun is. And I gotta say, today's subject is a subject that has always fascinated me. And you know, I've often told people that these ancients weren't dummies; they weren't ignorant goat herders. They yeah. had sophisticated civilizations. They had science. They had technology. They mm -hmm. had trade. They had everything we have. Maybe not in the same way, but they had everything we have. Mm -hmm. I, I hope that, that we can learn from them. I hope so, too. And take that best forward. We can also work, learn what didn't work for them mm -hmm. and to uh, avoid the those pitfalls as well. Okay, stay tuned for Beta Radio, and that's going to be a fun program coming up in minutes. We'll look forward to talking with you next week. And we celebrate one week from today, 35 years of broadcast and we appreciate that support. We continue to enjoy from you, and we're very, very thankful. I'm Scott Colborn, and until next week, walk in beauty. <laughs>